Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig, your host. And with me today is uh, a, a special guest, Christopher Rowe. Christopher, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Craig? Very good. Very good. And you and I are going to be talking, well, we're going to be talking, talking animals. Okay. Uh, that That's a weird sentence, but I'll explain it in just a moment. Uh, before we get to our subject, I do want to remind everybody listening to go check out thelegendarium.com where you can see past episodes uh, grouped by author, grouped by subject. You can also get the calendar with future episodes and links to both Patreon to support the show and Discord to join in the conversation. So thelegendarium.com is where you can find all those things. Uh, now let's get to Christopher. You are uh, you've you've been writing for a while and pretty darn successfully. You've been a finalist. I'm I'm seeing here for Hugo Nebula World Fantasy Awards, the Theodore Sturgeon. I think I missed one in there somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, you've been you've been writing for a while and doing well at it. How did you get started in writing? Let's kind of get to know you a little bit, and then we'll talk about your latest project, the book that just came out. Sure. Um, I was always a reader of science fiction and fantasy from a very young age. But then when I was 13 or 14, I'm from uh, Kentucky, um, I became fascinated with um, uh, regional literature, southern literature. And I kind of oscillated back and forth between, um, you know, pure quill genre fiction. Is science, is Asimov on one side and is Tolkien on the other side as you can get. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, Faulkner and Yoro Welty and Carson McCullers and et cetera on the other side. And it actually kind of like slowed my develop as, development as a writer. I was not a writer of fiction until my mid twenties. Um, and I discovered a book while I was working in a bookstore and a book came out uh, by a Kentucky writer, an Owensboro native named Terry Bisson, who is a world fantasy award winning writer and won every award in the world. And, Fantastic gentleman. I'm proud to call him a friend and a mentor and a teacher. And his collection of short stories that wowed the world was called Bears Discover Fire. So there's an animal connection here at the very beginning. <laughs> uh, I opened up the book. It had a very striking cover of bears standing holding torches. Uh, the book was called Bears Discover Fire. I opened to the first story, which was called Bears Discover Fire. It's about bears discovering fire. This is uh, all very confusing. You need yeah, to slow down. Okay, sorry. It's, um, <laughs> it's actually not about that. It's about, I mean, there are bears who discover fire in the story, but it's about elder care. It's a regionalist story. It's about end-of-life issues. It's about family. Um, and it is set largely in the median of U.S. Interstate 65 between Smith Grove and Bowling Green, Kentucky, about 50 miles from where I grew up. And it opened my eyes, that, that story and the other stories in that collection opened my eyes to the fact that I did not have to choose. I did not have to choose between being someone who writes regional Southern fiction and uh, science fiction and fantasy. That there's, a, there's a, a, not a path between those, but kind of an amalgamated path of those two worlds, or those many worlds, actually. There are, there are many Souths and there are many science fictions and many fantasies. And, um, yeah, it, it, you know, just like Paul, the scales fell from my eyes and, um, <laughs> nice. and I started writing. I love hearing about somebody working in a bookstore and then becoming a writer. It's a bit mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, Tarantino, uh, yeah, the video Tarantino store, yeah. in a video yeah. store and, and then becoming a world famous director. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. Uh, so 
I'm I'm torn on where to go because you've given me a few things. We could talk, you know, regional fiction, which I, I kind of want to do, but let's save it because I teased talking animals at the okay. beginning and I, I, want, I want, I need to deliver. Okay. I'm okay. nothing if not a slave to the fans. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this because your latest book that just came out is called the navigating Fox. Um, and it's uh, let's see the quote on the cover is half fable, half caper and a pure joy to read. Um, and so you, you seemed like a good person to talk about this subject with uh, and we're doing this in part because uh, we just finished reading a few Redwall books uh, on the podcast oh, and, and discussing those, and, you know, and it's a lot of fun to, to dip into my mm -hmm. childhood again, right? Uh, but it's, I find it to be an interesting question. Why do we tell fables? Why do we have animals talking? Why don't we just put it in, you know, humans' mouths? And of course, the kind of facile answer here would be, well, you know, it's, it's just an, why do we have aliens in science fiction? Why do we have elves in fantasy? You know, these are all, they're all stand-ins for human. Uh, and that's fine. But maybe we can dig a little deeper. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your draw toward a fable style and what, what you like about talking animals, what it does for you as a writer and, and as a reader for that matter. I'm glad you framed the question that way, Craig. I thought you were heading towards why do we as a species grab it towards or, or as writers in general talk about, uh, want to write about talking animals. And I was thinking, you know, I used to have to answer that question. I don't know why I should. <laughs> um, and I don't know whether Brian Jakes did ever or not, actually. And I will tell you up front, I have not read those books. I did buy the first one after my mm -hmm. publicity theme started hollering about Brian Jakes for adults. It is Jakes, right? Is that how you say his last name? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, I think um, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, why do I? You, you and I are you and I are both French speakers, and so yeah, when yeah. I hear Jake's, when I look at it and I hear yeah, Jake's, yeah. it hurts a little yeah, bit inside. Yeah. So. But you know, <laughs> British man, what are you going to do? Um, it's a so this book um, is a companion piece to an earlier short story titled "Knowledgeable Creatures" that was published I don't know four or five years ago on the Tor.com website. It was acquired and edited by the legendary editor. Ellen Datlow, who also acquired and edited this book. I was writing that story. My intention was to write a noir detective story. And so I started writing a noir detective story. I knew that there would probably be a fantastic element. I didn't know what it would be. And I'm writing along the first page. There's a noir detective. He's at his office, which is actually just a bar. And he's hanging out. And the femme fatale walks in and he says some more detective stuff, and she says some Finn Patel stuff. And at the bottom of the first page, he introduces himself, and he says, um, I am the private investigator Connolly Marsh. I am an investigative dog. And I'm like, huh, it's a talking dog. <laughs> nice. I'll be. <laughs> and, uh, and then somehow Ancient Rome got in there, and... Oh, are uh, we are we doing the meme? Uh, how, actually, how much I, do we? Pre I preceded the meme by years, years. I preceded the meme. Well, I mean, I I've didn't. Been, I'm not. I was like thinking old, about Rome not, before it was cool. I, exactly. I'm not older than Edward Gibbons, but the uh, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm getting up there. But no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not the first, nor the most recent person to be fascinated by ancient Rome. And <laughs> Sorry, I, I derailed you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so. Uh, I rapidly 
started just writing about a bunch of different talking animals and um, I've always been fascinated with animals. I've always been fascinated particularly with crows. My name is Christopher Rowe, C. Rowe, crow. Um, I've got a crow tattoo on my arm. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a talking crow in actually both of the pieces so far in navigating in the knowledgeable creatures. It's a very cool, his name is literally cool Charles. He's a crow. And then in, um, Navigating Fox, there's a kind of a bad, bad character crow named Mal Avis because I'm nothing if not clever. And um, <laughs> the uh, it's a it's not her real name. It is quite specific that it is a, um, a nom de evil or whatever. And uh, so I, you know, you kind of outline this. I think people are fascinated with, with talking animals. I'm fascinated with talking animals because animals have recognizable characteristics that are inhuman. So you can tweak that doll a little bit. Yes. Aliens, the human imagination is capable of extraordinary things, but it is not capable of not being human. And so to imagine the other as thoroughly and possibly as we can, we will never escape the fact that there is some element of human psychology in what we have imagined. But an opportunity exists for fantasists, uh, for science fiction writers, for religious teachers, for tale tellers, for um, instructors of every stripe to inhabit or portray or otherwise invest in a story, a character or a character traits that we understand to be animalistic. Now, that is immediately anthrop anthrop anthropomorphic. Now, I reject, and I'm one of like many people these days who reject the idea that anthropomorphism is a bad thing, right? Uh, anthropomorphism may very well save species, right? I mean, you know, I am glad that baby baboons are so dang cute, you know, because <laughs> uh, that, that, will, that will help save baboons, right? And... Um, you know, I, I think that's it. I think that I think that it's a lens. It's a it's a focusing uh, mechanism to yeah. look at look at people, and you've got this whole set of not necessarily fully understandable either characteristics of animals, but you know you can think, okay, a fox is sly. Well, I know what sly means. Now, is a fox sly? Is it fair to say a fox, a real life fox, out in the woods is sly? Probably not. Um, any more or any less than it is to say that that guy walking down, walking down the street down there looks kind of sly to me. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, anytime you, anytime you describe another psychology, another person, someone outside yourself, you're making assumptions. And if you are a storyteller like I am, then you get to use those assumptions as char you know, literal characteristics, is how I say to a, to a classroom. Yeah, it's as you were talking. I, I was thinking of uh, if we want to do the simplest possible version of, uh, of anthropomorph. Anthropomorph. It's a good oh one, isn't it? Oh my gosh, anthropomorphization. Yeah, I'm really hoping we actually, I'm really hoping we don't get to southern <laughs> literature, so I don't have to say Yatnetta pop. You know, whatever Falkenstein is. Yeah. All right. Anyway, no, but I was thinking about dogs and cats. Okay, yes. we're keeping it simple. Dogs and cats. Because the, the cliche is about dogs and cats, 
are are abundant and mm-hmm. pretty much deserved, right? Dogs are are happy and they they want to jump on you and they mm-hmm. want to you know, they want to play. Mm-hmm. Cats are very they're aloof and they're uh, quiet and they they clean themselves and they mm-hmm. whatever. It so so we have these uh, these characteristics in mind when we think of a a dog, just you know any old dog mm-hmm. or any cat. But you can also do that, like you said, with other animals, foxes, and bears, uh, cows, and sheep. I mean, yeah, we have sayings around the sheep, you know. Mm-hmm. All and cows. And, yeah. And, yeah, all that. So it strikes me that the talking animals idea, the, the fable, is kind of a shortcut. Or, you know, it could be used as a mm-hmm. shortcut for... Um, uh, human characteristics that the author wants to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of, so you take the, the sly fox. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you want to depict someone who's cunning and maybe a little bit uh, manipulative or sneaky or something like that. And so you turn him into a fox uh, in your story and the, and the reader mm-hmm. presumably is going to pick up on that, uh, really quickly and you don't have to do as much explaining. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's a simple shortcut that way, letting us, uh, strip away the complexity that is a fully fledged human being, mm-hmm. uh, into, and, and, and just focus in on one or two characteristics to explore through animals. I don't know. Is that fair? It is, and I'm going to go a little farther because every person that is watching or listening to this who has been a pet owner, a traditional Western world pet owner of dogs or cats, knows exactly what you're talking about when you list those characteristics. Every person who has spent a lot of time around dogs and cats, every person who has had the opportunity and the blessing to know or live with, own, whatever, a lot of dogs and cats knows that there are many, many exceptions and um, outright, outright reversals of those mm. stereotypes, right? I have had cats yeah. who like to fetch. Um, right. I have had dogs who were aloof, you know? It, um, you know, those little yappy dogs that ride around in people's purses or, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily, gold, you know, they don't have that big, goofy, golden retriever thing going. Um, <laughs> so I was sitting here thinking... About that, what you were just saying, which you, you know, you quite rightfully just basically took what I said and kind of like made it more fancy um, and complete. But I'm sitting here thinking, you know, did anybody, was Aesop the, did Aesop want to tell a story about a sly creature? And he was sitting there thinking, and so he saw a fox trot by and said, okay, it'll be a fox. Was Aesop the first person to think, did 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 we did he make it up and then everybody that came after him ascribes these characteristics that he invented to the animal? Almost certainly not. Almost certainly not. Right? Um, are coyotes tricksters? The the literal animals that live <laughs> not the in, in, in the southwestern uh, North yeah. American continent. I do not know. I, I have very little experience with coyotes. But presumably, uh, the holy teachers and cultural workers who are creating these cycles of stories, you know, millennia and millennia ago, collectively decided um, or realized or whatever that 
the coyote, which eventually became an extraordinarily powerful uh, myth, uh, mythic figure and um, culture hero, and and I has to take to say God because that's not that wouldn't be good anthropology. Not that I'm an anthropologist, uh, but yeah. Uh, so coyote becomes coyote, and there's this reflection thing that goes on, right? Um, you and I and Lewis Hyde know that. Um, that coyote, as we, you know, especially as we white people understand him, uh, is this kind of like, you know, wacky guy with a giant phallus here and like running around and making Raven mad and turning into a different gender and, you know, having his own babies and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, whoa, it's wild and everything. I didn't know coyotes were like that. <laughs> well, you know, coyotes aren't probably. I said earlier, I don't know a lot about coyotes. I'm pretty sure that they don't get into epic sky-scanning battles with ravens. Um, but, you know. Not while we're around it. No, no, fair, fair. You know, don't want to don't wanna ascribe any truth that I haven't witnessed, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, to wind it all down and try to answer your question in a pithy way, which is not my way, uh, the um, the answer is yes. The answer is uh, that is why we do it. We do it as an opportunity to learn more about, you know, all fiction. We're so, learning more about ourselves, connecting with others. So, yeah. Let's let's personalize it then a little bit and go back to what we were saying earlier. Why do you do this? What what do you use talking animals for? Um, why go that route instead of just people in your stories? You know, let's talk the navigating fox. And, okay. Uh, um, It's more interesting to me. It's kind of a banal answer, but that is a <laughs> hey, that is a the truth is, a, is the but, truth. Yeah, but that is a true answer. Um, part of my project with this one in particular was to kind of get at some stuff about imperialism and pre-contact cultures and um, and wildness. And when I think of North America, either right now or either tomorrow or either in 1492 or in 1000 or in 3000 BC, before the common era, um, I think of, I think of wildness. I think of wilderness. I think of animals, right? I mean, when I think, if somebody asked me to call, conjure up in my head, an image of the Great Plains from near the Arctic Circle to near Texas, this vast swath of grasslands spanning the continent. What's the image? Well, the image is bison. All right, that is the first mm. thing I think of, and um, and it is frequently that route. It is frequently that way. When I think of the Pacific Northwest, I think of bald eagles. As I as I intimated earlier, when I think of uh, the Southwest, I think of coyotes. Um, you know, it's anywhere. I mean, you know, the maritime province is cod. Uh, there's just, there's an association that is very strong for me and I believe for others, uh, between place and, um, history and time and color and experience that involves animals. And I think, um, since I was trying to tell a story that, dealt with all those as themes instead of simple characteristics. 
uh, you know, the time, the place, and so on, then that was a that was a way to access it for for me that it has some uh, has some spark to it, uh, has some uh, vitality, some potency to it um, mm. as a as a writer. It seems to be resonating with readers too. So you know, there we go. So that's interesting. It actually does tie in very neatly with uh, the idea of regional fiction. You're, you're going to make me say Yachna You're going to try to make me say it, are you? I'm not. I'm not <laughs> you already. You did that yourself. Okay. I, I remain blameless. <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, I I hadn't considered that angle before, so I I like that quite a bit. Um, as I was thinking of you know, shortcuts to human characteristics. And uh, that's valid. Fair. Absolutely fair. But uh, as a shortcut to a region. Yeah. It's uh, if you think about for me, you know, I I grew up in Seattle as a lot of listeners know. Um, So when you say the Northwest, you said bald eagles, but when you said the Northwest, my brain went orcas, 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 you know, so um, that would be a a shortcut for me. Uh, Oh man, this is fascinating. So, so tell us a little more. Let's dig into uh, the navigating fox a little bit. Why don't you give people a, a quick elevator pitch of what the story actually is, and then maybe we can dig in a little bit more. All right. Um, all right. For the purposes of this book, let's go with funicular pitch instead of elevator pitch. There's a funicular <laughs> in the first three pages of the story. Uh, that was one of the actually the one of the reasons I wanted to write this because I don't think there are enough funiculars in contemporary American fiction. And, you know, that seemed an opportunity to correct that oversight to some degree. Uh, the Navigating Fox uh, is a story about a navigating fox. Uh, you sense a, sense a running theme here. It is said... Are there any bears discovering fire? Uh, there are not. We, we not yet. That? There might be an homage. I once wrote a story called Bears Discover Mars, which was kind of a mashup of Terry Bisson <laughs> and Stan Robinson, um, which, thank God, never saw the light of day. Um... Okay, the it's a brief novella, briefish. It's like twenty eight thousand words, one hundred and sixty pages, I think, in the in the trade paperback. And it is about a alternate America that is alternate in several crucial ways. It is set roughly, well, it's not roughly. It's set in September eighteen seventy one in our dating. And I know that because I figured out exactly what the Roman date would be for the day the story starts. And I even mm. put it in the book um, <laughs> for anybody who was obsessed enough with Roman dating systems to actually be able to find it down. And also spent a day and a half figuring out what that date would be because the Romans were crazy calendar people. They did not make a lot of sense. They they had <laughs> February and then they stuck another month in there and then they went back to February. All right. They uh so um, I knew I wanted to, I knew I knew I wanted that level roughly of technology. Um, I won't say social advancement because that's a trap and not true. Um, <laughs> I wanted elements of imperialism. So you know, Roman Empire never fell. Uh, thank, mm, you know, the Empire never ended. Thank you, Philip K. Dick. And uh, and I wanted a North America, or I wanted an Americas. Um, in which, uh, you know, indigenous peoples were had significantly had significant political and personal and economic and since it's a fantasy novel, even magical um, power, mm-hmm. at least equal to and in the context of where they are, superior to 
the imperial um, invaders, basically. And of course, Rome's version of imperialism and version of, um, of um, what is the word I'm looking for? Not imperialism. Like colonialism? Yeah, the, yeah Rome's version of colonialism it was vastly different. Um, it, it wasn't good, it wasn't nice or cool, but it was different than what we think of now when we think of colonialism. They did, yeah. they made these kind of like, I mean, it wasn't tokenism. It wasn't token efforts, but they did. They did something different. They did a lot more integrate integration work than um, than say King Leopold III did. Uh, oh my God! <laughs> Anybody did. I did this morning more than Leopold ever did. Um, <laughs> so I wanted that kind of aspect in there. Um, I knew it was going to be another knowledgeable creature story because it's specifically what I was. Um, I, I I don't even remember. I wasn't asked to do a knowledgeable creatures novella, but when the opportunity develops to do a couple of these novellas for Tor.com, it became obvious and clear that you know that was one that was a story they really liked, and so that would be a good mm -hmm. idea to to do a knowledgeable creatures thing. I was thinking about all of these things anyway, and the story developed um, about a navigating fox. His name is Quintus Shual. Um, the story is about identity and the mysteries of one past, one's past. Shual is the Hebrew word for fox, and that is a clue. It is a clue that does not pay off in the story. I will tell you that right now. Uh, but it is uh, <laughs> how dare you? Yeah, but it is a clue for something that I know that you do not, and you that you will not learn when you write, when you read this book. Um, and so Quintus is a red fox. Uh, he is also a navigator. He is a guide uh, of expeditions, primarily of what we would call Westerners um, into the continent. Um, and he leads political and economic, and in this case, religious expeditions. Um, you know, there's not a lot I can say about the, the purpose of the journeys themselves mm -hmm. that are in the book without, you know, without giving it away. Well, yeah. Without giving away the yeah. plot, but there are, you know, uh, people like the characters. There's a couple of Roman grandees. There's a kind of a s sinister priest. There's the, and his sidekick, the aforementioned Malavis, a, a crow woman. I mean, bird crow, not, not the nation crow. Right. Everybody likes the raccoon twin cartographers, Loki and Foci, and the bison woman ambassador, <laughs> walks along woman. Um, you know, hijinks and sin. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, so it's a redemption story, as I understand it, right? He's sure. screwed up an expedition and now has to make amends or redeem himself or in, in some way. That is uh, the setup is just given on the back of the book. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that and that's all I've got to go on so far. My uh my copy is actually uh probably somewhere between the Amazon warehouse and my house right now. So right. <laughs> uh so we'll get there eventually. But anyway, um yeah, I just wanted to give people an idea of it. So this is not a not a book in which all the characters are animals. No, uh, no, no, you've no, got, no. These are... Um, you've got one science, among the humans, yes, right? A science fiction... Humans are the dominant political power on the planet. Um, and because humans 
Neb- uh, knowledgeable creatures do not exist without the intervention of humans. It is an alchemical version of what a science fiction would call a science fiction fan might call uplifting. Mm-hmm. You know, where a human intervenes in some way in the works of you know probably most famously David Brin. It's a combination of technologies that would never work, and I use magic that would never work. So you know, I'm in good company, I guess. Um, <laughs> but like for example, the um, um, all the animals, all the knowledgeable creatures, I call these uplifted animals, all the creatures that are knowledgeable as opposed to voiceless, which are the animals as we know and understand them in our world, uh, all the knowledgeable creatures can speak. Uh, they can speak and be understood, and they are mutually intelligible with humans. There is no animal that we know of that has the physiological apparatus to perfectly reproduce human speech. All right? Um, with its full complexity, with all of the utterances, et cetera, et cetera. And mm. so I completely hand wave that. I do not, you know, there's not some kind of weird, weird vocal box thing going on with Quintus and the raccoons and with everybody else. Um, it, they just talk and people can understand them and they can understand people. And, you know, that's, that's the whole thing. And, and you know, and that's the dream, isn't it? That's uh, one, one, aspect of talking animal stories that we haven't really talked about is just the joy that people can have imagining Mm -hmm. being able to talk to Mm -hmm. a fox in this Mm -hmm. case, uh, you know, or your dog or cat or the the lion chasing you down, you know, it'd be great if we could just hash this out Mm -hmm. over tea, right? Um, So I, I just love Frankly, that's one of the reasons I like the Brian Jakes books is it's it's really fun to imagine mice talking yeah. And, you know, rats threatening and, you know, whatever else happens. It's, mm-hmm. it, I, I often, although not lately, I haven't talked about this as much lately, but I often talk about how at, at the beginning and the end of the day, a story should be fun. And with talking animals, you get some fun. Well, okay, I shouldn't say that. A, a no, story, I'm, I'm, I'm actually coming up with a definition of fun that like maps onto what you're saying. Because I think uh, you're you know, right. I'm thinking I think like right. horror, horror movies are fun, even though they're not fun. You know, yeah, quote yeah. unquote, they're entertaining. They're yes. whatever. Well, yeah. especially for not me, not for me. I find horror to be very frightening, <laughs> and um, I hate to break it to you, Christopher, but that's the idea. Actually, it scares me. <laughs> all right, horror yeah. does in fact scare me. And yeah. um, actually, I was watching. I was I was visiting some friends last night, and um, they have a whole network. They have a whole streaming service. It's nothing but horror stuff. I don't remember what it was called, but Shutter. There you go. That's what yeah. it was. And I was I like, know. you know, uh, I'll watch this one thing that make me watch, and then I'm going to make you watch an episode of Riverdale, and then we're all going to bed. <laughs> you know how to party. That's exactly. Right. I love it. <laughs> all right. Excellent. So. Um, the book is The Navigating Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, it's, it's not a huge novel. It's not a doorstopper. Uh, so if somebody's looking for uh, a quicker read, I, oh, there you go. Yeah, hold it up so I can see. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's got like the one of the best covers that I could I actually like it quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So I'll, I'll link to that below. Any... It, Let's see. Are there any other unexplored avenues um, that we can go down for the next few minutes uh, when it comes to talking animals? Do you have a favorite talking animal book or other other kind of story? Any you know movies or uh, whatever? Do you have a favorite that you like to think of? 
I have not read. I have not. You you said the threatening rat. That made me think of um, the secret of Nim. And oh, I sure. do not know. Oh, I'm blanking on who wrote the book. Is Mrs. Frizz, Mrs. Bisby, Mrs. Frisby and the Rats of Nam or something like that? Yeah. I, I do not remember who wrote it off the top of my head. Uh, Robert O'Brien. Robert O'Brien. Okay. That, the, I have not read the book. The movie is fabulous. The movie is fabulous. And, of course, um, yes, the answer is Bugs Bunny. All right. The answer, is, the answer to this is all, for me is always going to be Bugs Bunny. Himself a, tri- himself a trickster figure, right? Um, <laughs> but the whole panoply of, of uh, American commercial cartoons as it existed from the 30s through around 1960, I guess. Maybe a yeah. little bit into it. I don't know that much about the history of it. But, you know, your Mickey Mouses and your Roadrunners and all that kind of stuff. Your Coyote, um, who, um, while E. Coyote, super genius. Um, but, yeah, Bugs and his pals are probably, for me, were the formative experience for me as far as talking animal texts goes. And how could it not be? I mean, no. it's, uh, if you're a person of a certain age who grew mm-hmm. up in America, you're very familiar with mm-hmm. certain talking animals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, for me, it was... Um, I definitely watched those cartoons as a mm-hmm. kid. I was a, I was a weirdo. Mm-hmm. I listened to more radio than I watched TV at a certain age, and mm-hmm. so I, I don't know that I saw all those cartoons, but... Uh, but Redwall was a big one for me. Mm-hmm. And then once I got old enough, um, I read Animal Farm. That was a big one for me. Fun. That's, Fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, like, like I said, we're stretching the definition yeah, of fun yeah. with some of these stories. But that's, uh, it, it still works. I'm sticking to my guns here. <laughs> we'll call them fun guns. Uh, <laughs> okay, cool. So... Oh, oh gosh. I apologize. I'm actually going to pause for a second. My phone is yelling at me. Okay. No. Unpause. Um, people should go check out The Navigating Fox. Christopher, any other parting words of wisdom for those about to embark on your stories? Um, well, as you mentioned, you have actually not read the book, but you've asked a lot of, po- uh, you've asked a lot of cogent and intelligent questions about it. So I would like to encourage people that even if they do not read the book, it's okay to give a five-star review um, <laughs> or at least a rating or ranking on uh, you know, yeah. any, any service that they, any service <laughs> of their choice. Actually, you know, I, I just hope you read it. Um, it's, it is currently my favorite thing that I've ever written um, that has been That's, published. Uh, it's, it's That's quite a statement. Yeah, it's got a um, it's it's got a energy to it that I believe people are picking up on. It's been better reviewed. I mean, I've always been really lucky with reviews, but this is quite unusual in terms of how much attention it's getting from even um, I was going to say non-genre. I've actually been really lucky even with what we call the trades, uh, Publishers Weekly, Library mm-hmm. Journal, Kirkus, all that kind of business. Um, but this time I'm getting starred reviews instead of good reviews and got reviewed in the wall street journal of all places with a, a fine review, which is kind of interesting. Getting a lot more attention online. Uh, it's the first time I've ever done podcast interviews for one of my, for one of my <laughs> books, for example, yeah. first time I've ever been on legendarium. Oh, well, um, it's a yeah, mark today for sure. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> um, I'll raise my diet coke to you, sir. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I 
I legit hope but you read it, it. At least, at least give a look at it because um, I think it does. It speaks to a lot of things that I think people are talking about right now and worrying about right now in ways that um, that are simultaneously accessible, are meant to be simultaneously accessible and entertaining and fun. You know. There you go. Uh, that's that's how you wrap it up. Absolutely. So the navigating fox. Uh, go check it out. You can't miss it. If you, you see it on the shelf or something, you won't miss it. Like you said, the cover is amazing. It kind of looks like um, I, I I almost expect uh, Neil Gaiman to be on the cover with that kind of uh, illustration. I really like it quite a bit. Um, but it's not Neil Gaiman. It's Christopher Rowe. So, Christopher, thank you so much for uh, spending a little bit of time with me talking, we're talking, talking animals. Uh, an absolute pleasure and hope you'll come back at some point. This has been great. I hope to as well.